So, welcome. We're going to dive right into the scripture this morning. So, if you want to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have a blue Bible, I didn't write down the page number. You're going to have to find it on your own. But there is a lovely index in the very front that will give you where it's at. It's uh, after the middle of the Bible, um, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and it goes Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. This is a good practice for us to hunt around and find it. Uh, your phone will make it really easy for you. But, so while you're going there, once you get to 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 7, stick your finger there. We'll be there in just a minute. So you may have noticed that last week, Heidi and I were not here And we had a good reason. We had the privilege of going to um, Annie Kornberg's wedding. What? Well, her name was Annie Kornberg when we went. It is no longer Kornberg. It is now Crawford. Um, So it was really awesome that we got the privilege to do this. So Annie is one of our council members. She is part of the preaching team, and she also does the announcements occasionally. She's the one that's like ridiculously energetic. You know that one? The one that's like, so I just love Annie. But I get tired sometimes when I'm around her. Uh, so she was, she was getting married in Portland, and they did it on a Saturday night just to make it so that, you know, we couldn't be here on Sunday morning. I think it was a, on purpose. I think she did it just for us, so we'd have to take a Sunday off. It was nice of her. It was so much fun. Um, she, her, the, the two of them, they had the most amazing wedding. It was so much fun. And I talked about weddings a couple weeks ago, how much I loved going to them because it's like this great celebration. And then afterward, you have the after party, right, with the food and the cake and the dancing. You guys should have seen our daughter, Amelia. Oh, my goodness. They were playing. So I like to go to, to weddings, and, and I like to dance a little bit at a wedding. But the music that they were playing, I literally did not know how to dance to. It was just like, I'm like, I can't wobble to this. you got to wobble faster. And so you know, Heidi and I kind of sat there and watched everybody and talked with the other, eight other people that couldn't dance. And Amelia jumped into the middle of it. So there's all these 20 and 30-year-olds just like dancing, and she's in the middle. And they literally make a circle around her as she's doing her moves out there, and she's eight. It was really insane, insanely funny. Um, so that's one thing I will never forget from that wedding is watching her just cut loose. The other thing that I will never forget was Joe, her husband. So we were, it was really, it was kind of awkward how the wedding was set up because we were all facing the sun and it was outdoors and the sun was like coming down. And so everybody in the crowd's going like this, trying to see the wedding, which is in front of us. Joe said that he looked at it at one point and thought we were all scowling at him. He was like, <laughs> It's like, why are they all so angry with me? <laughs> You're stealing Annie, you know. But we weren't angry. We were just like really trying to see. And so, so you know how the weddings go, right? They bring down the bride's mom and the groom's mom and then like the groom's aunt and the groom's third cousin and like this long procession of people and then the bridesmaids and groomsmen are all up there. And then comes the moment when the special music comes on and the bride walks down the aisle. You guys know that moment, the special music? So the special music comes on, everybody stands up, everybody turns around, and here comes Annie, and she was, I mean, she was gorgeous in her dress, but the thing that I will never forget is I, instead of looking at Annie, I turned and I looked at Joe, and you know what Joe did? He started weeping. He doesn't know I'm telling you this, so when you see him in a couple of weeks, just pat his back and say, it's going to be all right, man. He was so overcome with love for this beautiful woman walking down, and he's like, she's mine. And he just started crying. And then all the bridesmaids are like, oh, no, you know, and they're going to cry. And then all the groomsmen are like, oh, I'm, I'm tough. I'm not going to cry. And I thought for sure this just, it was just going to be a blubber fest the rest of the wedding. But Joe got it together. We got a picture to show you so you can see what I'm talking about. But there they are, 
newly married. Audrey and Kelly did the ceremony, and that's Joe, and that's Annie, in case you don't know. You're supposed to, like, awe or something. I don't know. So I will never forget that moment because what it did for me was it reminded me of Heidi and I's wedding, the moment that I looked down the aisle and I saw her and I started to tear up and this moment of overwhelming love. Like, it's probably one of the highlights of love in your whole life is that moment when you realize this woman is mine as a man. And if you're a woman, I don't know if you experience the same thing, maybe. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, oh, it's a, you get to that aisle and there's different kind of butterflies, like, ah, oh, marrying that. But anyway, um, I looked at Heidi and I was just overwhelmed. I remember that overwhelming love feeling. And as I watched Joe, I was taken back to my own wedding and I thought to myself, tearing a page right out of Jesus' notebook, I thought, man, if I can love that woman in this moment, and this is like maybe one of the best moments of love I ever give to somebody, if I can love a woman like that, me who is a dirty, rotten sinner, me who is a mess inside, me who is struggling and finding a way and letting Jesus transform and work in me, if I am able to love somebody in a moment with that overwhelming love, how much more does God love you and me? How much more does he love us? It's such a picture of his love. That's why weddings are so important because it's a metaphor for God and his church, you and me, you specifically, us together, his bride. And God is waiting for that day when we walk down the aisle in our wedding dress. Now, we're not talking about cross-dressing. It's kind of metaphorical, but we've been clothed with righteousness rather than a beautiful dress. We've been clothed with holiness instead of a beautiful dress. We've been clothed with wholeness. That's a big thing. We talk about righteousness and holiness and faithfulness and all that stuff, but wholeness is what God's after. Our whole heart gets to walk down that aisle and meet Jesus face to face. And his response to us is going to be nothing but love and excitement. He loves you. And I want you to remember that this morning that he loves you deeply. That's what Paul has been getting at in the book of 1 Corinthians. Is he's untangling the culture from the church. Is he's untangling these practices that have, were more informed by their old way of life than the new family of Jesus. As he's untangling this stuff, he says to the church, look church, you are the bride of Christ. You are the beloved of Jesus. And you know what? It's time to start acting like it. In fact, if I could put Paul's, Paul's words, I think if he was living today, you know what he would say to you and me? He'd look at you and he'd say, grow up, grow up. It's, it's time to stop playing the field. It's time to stop running around on Jesus. You are the bride of Christ. Grow up and get dressed for the wedding. Get dressed, get ready. So he takes on the church and he, he addresses those two big things. One, the guy that was you know, having an affair with his mom and then a guy who was suing other Christians and he was even, they weren't necessarily, you know, fair lawsuits. They were, he was just trying to get money and position, and he was trying to work his way up. He was addressing their passions and their ambitions and saying, those things are out of whack. Grow up in your passions, grow up in your ambitions, and follow Jesus. Grow up and serve him and follow him and look to him and him alone. Now, today, he's going to take this marriage metaphor, and he's going to flip it a little bit, and he's going to address a question. Because that's what good spiritual fathers and mothers do, right? We've talked about this. Spiritual fathers and mothers, they bring correction, right? They call you up 
not out. They're not saying, Doug, what did you do? They're saying, Doug, you could do better. They're saying, you were made for more. You were made for greater. And that's what he's doing in addressing the first part. Now he's going to answer their questions. So this lady named Chloe, how many of you knew that this book of the Bible was written because a woman asked some questions? Women, you have power. It's important. The Bible isn't all down on women like some think. So Chloe, who was a leader in the church, an elder in the church, wrote to Paul and said, hey, there's some things going on that I want you to know about. How do we deal with this? And then she said, and we got some questions for you. Now, her first question is very informed by the culture because there was two things going on in their culture. Culture part one, there was a sex cult, okay? It was the, the temple of Aphrodite, temple prostitution. And then the Roman culture on top of that said, hey, indulge your passions at all costs. Have as much fun as you can now. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. That's out actually out of Ecclesiastes, but that was the attitude, right? Just live it up. And then there was this other part of the culture who were the ascetics. And they were saying, look, sexuality and sex makes you dirty. It's bad. It leads you astray every time. So we should all just avoid sex. And now these two cultural comments, these two voices collide in the church. And you've got one part of the church with a man who's sleeping with his mom, and you've got another part of the church who's saying sex is bad at all costs. Like, it, every, it, there's no circumstance under which sex is bad or good. So Chloe writes to Paul, and she, who's probably married, she's probably married, and she's like, so which is it? <laughs> what does the Bible say about this? Well, what are we supposed to do? And then Paul writes this really long section of this, this chapter, chapter 7, the section of the book of 1 Corinthians, to answer her question. And it's really complicated. And he's like addressing all kinds of people in lots of different ways and lots of different circumstances. But he comes down to the end of it, and he actually is going to come to this point in verse 32, which is where we're going to start reading. He says this. This is the end of his long talk. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Come on, married men, let's hear an amen. Right? He's so anxious. His interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman, she is anxious about the things of the Lord how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. Come on, married women, let's hear an amen there. Ooh. <laughs> I didn't say you were anxious about your husband. I said worldly things. Like We're talking about whatever. I don't know, everybody's got different roles. I don't want to pin you into a role like grocery shopping, but, you know, that might be it. Where am I at? You guys just threw me off. You didn't give me an amen, and I just don't even know what to do with that. Oh, boy. Okay. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So you're going, wait, I thought this was about sex and sexuality. I thought that's what we were going to talk about, because that's what the question was about. Is sex good or is sex bad? The rest of the chapter, everything that happened before this verse He's describing all sorts of different contexts in which sex takes place. 
But this is the nitty-gritty. This is his big point. And I really like this last line, verses 35. And I, li- I looked into it, if you guys ever read the message, message translation of the Bible, I love how Eugene Peterson translated this. And this is what I'm going to work from today. And he says this way. So Paul is saying to the church, I say this for your benefit. Oops, I, I'm reading the wrong version. <laughs> All I want for you is to be able to develop a way of life in which you can spend plenty of time together with the master without a lot of distractions. At the end of his whole discussion on sex and sexuality, he says, look, I'm not trying to make this hard for you. I I don't want to lay a burden on you. I don't want to make this difficult for you. What I want to do is make life really easy. All I want is for you to be able to develop a way of life. You're not there yet, but you're moving toward this, developing a way of life in which you can spend plenty of time together with Jesus. And that that time is going to be without a lot of distractions, without a lot of anxiety, without a lot of stress, without a lot of fear, without a lot of things running around in your brain, that you would be able to spend time with Jesus undistracted and have plenty of it. Doesn't that sound nice? Doesn't that sound really nice just to have that plenty of time, like a life free from distractions? You're able to focus on what's important to you and to God. You've got plenty of time. That's a miracle in and of itself, right? Plenty of time. Most of us are like, I don't have plenty of time. Like, God gave you 24 hours, and you're like, I could use 25 or 26, right? I could use those hours on sleep. I could use those hours getting my work done. I'm short on time. This passage, this, this call from Paul, this opportunity really feels like a miracle, that you would have plenty of time and that that time would be undistracted. This is his one goal in our sexuality. In your sexuality, that you would be undistracted from Jesus, that you would be undistracted from God, that you would have plenty of time to spend with him. What Paul is going after is the power of sexuality to distract us from our marriage to Jesus. It's power to pull us away from what God has for our lives, to love him, to love yourself, and out of that love for him and yourself, to be able to love your neighbor really, really well. That's what Paul is after. And it's really what Jesus is after. He's using Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians. Jesus is speaking to you and to me today in calling us to a life free from distraction, a life free from anxieties and stresses in which we have plenty of time to spend with Jesus. Do you know what happens if you don't develop that kind of life like Paul calls us to? You know what happens? What happens is we become like the characters in the story of the Good Samaritan. You know Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan? This is like culture knows this story, that there is somebody on the side of the road, he was walking along, he got robbed, he got beaten, they took all of his clothes, he's laying there naked and bloody, dying, and like people start walking past him. And they, you know, Jesus makes a big point about religious leaders and, and rabbis and everything's like that, but you know, the point is it's us, and we walk past this guy, and we're too busy, too distracted to love that person on the side of the road. We, we can't see him. We don't have time. We might look. It's like, oh, he's got, a, he's got a sign that says he needs help. Jesus, send somebody to help him, and we keep on, you know, because I've got my list of things to do still. I've got my stuff to get to. 
And it's worse because it's not just the man bleeding on the side of the road that we miss when we have a life that's full of distraction and anxiety where we're not spending enough time with Jesus. Because it's not just those people that we miss. It's the people right around us every day. It's our spouses. It's our children. I can't tell you how many times in the course of 20 years of marriage that I've had too many distractions and anxieties on my heart and on my mind, and I missed my wife. I missed what she had to say. I missed what was going on. Or my kids are like, daddy, 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 daddy. And you're like, I'm busy. I'm I'm notorious. And it's not just taking and like not being distracted. It's not just, oh, I don't have time for my family. It's I don't have time for God. And if I don't have time for God, I can't develop that relationship with him that helps me love my family well. And that's why I've spent copious amounts of time in the recent years learning to spend time with Jesus, learning to stop long enough so that he can speak, learning to pay attention to what he's saying so that I can pay attention to my family. So my question to you this morning is this, what are some of the distractions you face in your day-to-day life that keeps you from spending plenty of time with Jesus? This is not a rhetorical question. I actually want you to share, shout them out, okay? So what are some things that distract you from spending plenty of time with Jesus? Go ahead. What? Her rental property, all right? Shout them out. We'll just get rid of that, okay? If we just get rid of your rental property, you'd be good, right? All right, how about something else? Kids. If we just get rid of the kids, right? If we just get rid of the kids, we won't be distracted. How about who else? A job. Man, if you didn't have to work, you could spend all kinds of time with Jesus. What else? School. Dirty school. What else? Sports. Dirty, dirty sports. Oh, man. Those Seahawks just taking your time from Jesus. Those Mariners. Let's just pray for the Mariners, shall we? (laughs) They just need an intervention from Jesus. What else? What was that? Pain. Man, if we could just get rid of that pain. What else? Somebody else? Our our yard. Holy cow. Our yard. How many of you would say this describes you? Between work, my paid work, and my unpaid work, and my family, I rarely have time for myself. Did you say you feel that? Or have felt that recently? Or how about this one? I am working so much that I don't have time for things that are important to me, like my family, exercise, yard work, (laughs) time to read a good book. How many would say you feel that way or have felt that way? You're working so much that you don't have time for those things that are really valuable to you. Is that anybody? I heard some yeses and some nods. I heard some nods. I think that means there's rocks in the brain. Um, How many would say this? I long for a pace of life that allows me to pursue my passions to be a part of my family and to have enough time with Jesus. I mean, you would say you would long for that. I'm going to get like a couple of half-hearted hands. I mean, how many of you really want that? Amen. Ooh, amen. <laughs> or how many of you have ever felt like this? You're trying to slow down so that you can live an undistracted life, but you always have this voice in the back of your head saying, you better hurry. You got a list. You got to get the list done. You've got a lot to do, right? You're not getting enough done, Doug. You got to get that truck fixed. You got to get rid of that. Listen, friends, here's the thing. We live in the wealthiest country in the world, 
right? And yet most of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, are living out of poverty. We're living out of poverty, not just on money. There's never enough money. That's a poverty mindset. There's never enough time. That's a poverty mindset. I don't have enough energy. That's a poverty mindset. There's no time for reflection, no time to savor food. Like, it's just something we wolf down real fast, and we don't stop and go, Heidi made some chicken yesterday that would blow your socks off, but you'd have to sit long enough to enjoy it. (laughs) We don't have time to savor food, and no time to enjoy the people right around us. We are busy. That's the value that of our culture, right? It's like a badge of honor. We wear, we wear a, like, it's like the green jacket in golf, to use a sports analogy. I don't even know why they choose that ugly green. It's the worst. They win, they win this huge golf tournament, and here, have an ugly jacket. You know? And they wear the ugly jacket, and it's a badge of honor in golf. It's, it's, the, it's the big trophy in hockey, that giant birthday cake trophy or whatever. You know? it's, it's a badge of honor. I'm busy. I'm so busy. How are you doing? Oh, I'm really busy. Oh, good for you. You know, you're not sitting around being bored. Excellent. We're busy. We're busy with our ambitions. We're busy with our passions. The translation of I'm busy is unvaluable. But what Paul is after in this text, what Jesus is after with you, is not a busy person. It's not a person who's earning their value, but it's a person that is undistracted that has plenty of time to spend with Jesus. It's not lazy. It's putting what should be first, first, so that everything else can be done in a way that you are able to give your full self to it. You're able to love your spouse fully. You're able to love your neighbor fully. You're able to love your community well. You're able to love God well because you've spent this time just setting distractions aside and paying attention to Jesus. So Paul makes this point about sex and sexuality. That this is his goal. Is it in your sex and sexuality that you would be undistracted and have plenty of time to spend with Jesus? He's not trying to make hard life hard. He's not trying to put a bunch of rules on us for how our sexuality should work. He's just trying to keep it simple so that you could be undistracted. And in his answer, he really speaks to two audiences which coincidentally is the same two audiences that are here today. Surprise! A miracle, isn't it? It's like a Bible miracle happening right now. Paul was writing to two different groups of people. Group one, the married people, right? How many married people we have today? Woo! Okay, the church talks about you a lot, right? We talk about marriages all the time. The second group of people is the single people. Did you know that Paul spends half of chapter 7 talking to single people? He spends a lot of time talking to single people, and that's because single people are important, because you've been given a gift. We're going to talk about that first. So Paul's going to talk about these two different groups, and we're going to talk to those two different groups today. First, I'm going to talk to the single people, and then I'm going to talk to the married people. Cool? Married people, you're going to want to pay attention to what I say to the single people, because, get this, the chances are, if you are married now, you will be single someday, or dead. One of you will probably die, and the other one is going to be remaining single, okay? It's true. Ron's like, no, uh No, it's not. That's not going to happen. He's like, I'm dying first, right? That's our argument all the time. Who's going to die first? Or Jesus will come back, and then we won't have to worry about it. 
So between young people who are not yet married, engaged people, the betrothed, as Paul would say it, uh, the widowed, those who have had a spouse pass away, and the divorced, over 50% of the church in America is single, and yet we spend a lot of time talking about marriage. Paul is going to call singles to something that I like to call extreme singleness. It sounds like a game show, like at the X Games, extreme singleness. So if you are in the single category, Paul is speaking to you to live a life that is free from distractions so that you can spend undistracted time with the master. That's his whole point. In fact, you know what, singles... You feel like you're like second-class citizens in the church. Often we treat you that way, and I apologize. But did you know for the first nearly 1,500 years of the church, being single was the way to go? Seriously. The marrieds, second-class citizens every time. If you wanted to be a priest, a nun, a, uh, or actually, let me restate that. If you wanted to be somebody in the church, you would be a priest or a nun or a monk or a, a father, or a pastor, any of those titles. Like, that was that, the most spiritual people in the church for the first 12 to 1,300 years. It's a long time, folks. Being single was to be spiritual. Those who, in fact, have ever been a part of the Roman Catholic Church, you know that you can't even be in leadership if you're not single. There are some denominations now, though, that you can't be in leadership unless you're married. We use this marriage or singleness as this weird dividing line between what's spiritual and what's unspiritual. So Paul comes to people and to the single people, and he says this to them. And actually, he says this to the whole church. And this is where the whole priest, nun, celibacy, why the first 1,200 years of the church being single was the way to go, because Paul said this one sentence. Now, as a concession, verse 7, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. And Paul's saying, I'm single, and I wish everybody could be single. He's not down on marriage, but he's saying, single is the way to go because you can live undistracted. Just what that passage that we read in the beginning says, you know what? Husbands, you got to worry about whether your wife is happy. you got to worry about making enough money. you got to worry about getting the chores done. Women, you got to worry about, and whatever the cultural standard of their day was, was probably taking care of their house, you got to make sure that that was done. you got to make sure that your children are healthy. you got, you got all these things you got to take care of. But single people, like Paul, you can live undistracted. You can live and focus on God. But he says this, few have this gift. Very few have this gift, the gift of celibacy. Sadly, those who are single have really been given a bad rap in the church. Often we have single men will come to church in their 30s or 40s, and people kind of look at him like, what's wrong with that guy? Why didn't some woman pick him up? There's got to be something wrong with him. He can't be in children's ministry. Can't trust that guy. Hmm, that's maybe fair, but maybe not. We have this bad rap, and yet Paul says, look, I wish everybody was like me. Singles, you're in good company, though. Did you know this? Paul was single. He wrote most of the New Testament. Guess who else was single? Jesus was single. 
All right, so you got two pretty good role models to look up to here about your singleness, whether you're thinking about getting married someday, or you wish you were married, or you're divorced, or you're widowed, or you're confirmed. You know what? I think, I think maybe Jesus has this for me. I can devote my life to him. Jesus, you can look to. Jesus, you know what, wouldn't even be allowed to pastor in some churches today because he wasn't married. It's been almost 20 years since I was single, 20 years this February, and you know what? My single life feels like a long time ago, but you know what I remember about it? I remember feeling really anxious. You know why? Because I was 22, 23 years old. I'd had cancer. My parents got married at 17, 18 years old, and I was sure that I was just old hat being put out to pasture. I was going to be the confirmed bachelor for the rest of my life because there was nobody around for me to marry anymore. I was out of college. Oh, we were going to find a wife. I was so anxious about finding that spouse. And I was focused on this broken part of me, this, this thing that I felt incomplete, and rather than focusing on Jesus. I was doing the Jerry Maguire thing. You guys remember the Jerry Maguire movie from back in the day where Tom, Tom, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruz, that, that one guy, the short one, and he says, you complete me. And I'm like, well, there's nobody to complete me. Where is this complete? I, I am going to be forever not whole because, you know what? I was looking for the wrong thing because Jesus is what completes me. The Father is what completes me. So singles, don't be worried and anxious about feeling incomplete, but find your wholeness in Jesus. Find your wholeness in Jesus. I used to think, okay, I'm going to use a bad word for the church. You ready? It's the E word, evangelism. I got giggles, and I got a few people that squirmed just a little bit. Because let's be honest, while we say in the evangelical church that the most important thing that we should be doing is evangelism, very few of us do it because it's, we're scared to death, right? We think we have to go on the street corner and preach Jesus saves, and we bring the signs and, you know, do all that stuff, and we're like, that's just scary. I used to think that the loudest voice for evangelism was those people on the street corners or up on campuses. Then I used to think that my loudest, my personal loudest voice of evangelism was my sermon giving, okay, my, my preaching of the word. You know what I realized? The loudest voice I have in my witness is how I live. It's my marriage, and if you're single, your loudest voice of evangelism is your singleness, how you choose to live out being single, what you choose to pursue. So I want to call you, if you are single, don't waste your singleness. We throw it away. We're busy and distracted. You know, I read, I read a report, I was reading about just the busyness of Americans, and it was talking about singles. Singles are saying nowadays, oh, I'm not married, so I might as well work two jobs and then build up a bank account so I can get this huge retirement, and then if I get married along the way, great, we can retire early. Singles are saying, hey, I'm going to just put extra hours into my degree program. Instead of spending the normal 40 hours, I'm going to do 60, 80 hours. We're throwing our time into our work. We're throwing our time into dating and into bars. We're throwing our time into all sorts of things, seeking after something other than Jesus, and we're distracted. Don't waste your singleness. Jesus said this way about being single. He said, some singles are called 
to be single for their entire life for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he was talking about himself, but it's not for everybody. Some of you singles may be here today and being called to a life of singleness in which you can pursue the things of God for the sake of the kingdom of God. You can throw yourself wholeheartedly into your relationship with him and into serving his church. And we don't talk about this enough, but this is something that Jesus lifts up and honors, and I want to honor it here today. Whether anybody is here feeling like maybe I'm called to a life of celibacy and singleness for Jesus or not, we need to start honoring these people. We need to start saying, this is a call and a gift from God. Some of you may be called to that sort of vow, but it's not to be taken lightly. In most contexts where people take a vow of celibacy for the rest of their life, they go into a period of discernment for five to seven years before they make that vow. So it's not to be taken lightly. The second category of singles, though, that Paul talks about, so we got vowed celibates, then we have situationally celibates. I would call them devoted singles, okay? And what that means is that you're devoted to Jesus first, and you're following Jesus first, and you're seeking Jesus first, and someday God may bring Prince Charming. It's what Annie called Joe. She said, he looks like a Disney prince. She's right. That guy does look like a Disney prince. I love it. I had to take a drink. A person who is devoted as a single and a person who is vowed as a single, they take their sexuality and they hold it and they allow God to shape it and they learn to be healthy within it in the context of a community. We learn to be with the opposite sex in a healthy way without it becoming sexualized, which is what our culture has done. You guys seen this? In our culture, male and female are highly sexualized. But in the church, it's not to be that way. In the church, we're to look at one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus. We look at each other as family. And we have care and concern, and we're able to be with the opposite sex in a healthy way. So that is the call, is to develop a life that reflects God's love for you as a single that is loyal to God first that is faithful to your relationship with him first, that is unconditional, and that is life-giving. It reflects God's love, God's love for you. It, it just shows it. It's faithful. It's unconditional and life-giving and loyal. Sex in and of itself, Paul says, is not sinful. He never says it's sinful, it's bad. He just says, look, it's powerful. It has the power to distract you from what is most important, which is your relationship with God, because you become one flesh with whoever you have sex with. You carry your sin and all of those things. Remember baggage? We all carry baggage. We take our baggage and their baggage, and they come together, and they become one flesh, and those bags have little roller bags and backpacks, and they grow up into giant suitcases. But God is calling us to be joined to Him first, and that is the point of singleness, you know, we talk in the church a lot. We take the world's values around sex and sexuality, and we say, hey, you shouldn't have sex because you're going to get an STD, right? You're gonna, it's damaging. It's bad. But, you know, Paul doesn't really take it that way. He says, you're just stepping outside of the bounds of your first relationship. That's the big deal. You're stepping outside of the bounds of your relationship with God, and he is calling you to be faithful. Sex isn't sinful, 
It's really good. It's just powerful. And if it's not kept in the bounds of the container that it was meant to be in, then it will pull you away from God every time. And that shifts me to talk about marriage, radical marriage. And singles, you're going to want to hear this as well. So let's talk briefly about what radical, extreme marriage looks like. Just as your singleness is your loudest witness for Jesus, so too is your marriage. Your marriage is your loudest witness to the world because they are looking at you, especially today when 50% of marriages end in divorce. They're looking at undivorced married couples and they're going, there's something wrong in this. There's something going on there. There's got to be some sort of train wreck or mess behind all of that. And Jesus is busy trying to redeem that mess to set you up as this glorious witness of what God wants to do with us. To have a loving whole relationship that is intimate, that is filled with love, that is filled with passion. So we love God above all things, and and people want to see that in us. And when they do, that is our loudest witness for Jesus. To have a love for God that is passionate to the point of the cross. It's self-sacrificing. It's intimate. It's close. It's faithful. It's unconditional, and it's life-giving. Can you imagine if there was a group of married people in the world whose marriages reflected that sort of love? Oh, wait, that's supposed to be the church. That's supposed to be us. It's challenging. Those marriages, they force us to face ourselves. They force us to go back into our lives so that we can go forward, to look at our family of origin and how we operated there so that we can do this different in this marriage. How many of you ever said, you know, my mom and dad did it this way, but I'm going to do it different? How many of you ever said that? Right? Even single people, we can say this about our marriage. I'm just going to live different, right? I'm not going to do what mom and dad did. Mom and dad was an alcoholic. I'm not going to be an alcoholic. Mom and dad was abusive. I'm not going to be abusive. Mom and dad weren't Christians. I'm going to be a Christian. Mom and dad were overweight. I'm not going to be overweight. Mom and dad had heart issues. I'm going to run. We say, this is what we, we're going to do it different. And that's what our marriages are supposed to be, a challenging place where we grow and thrive and change and yet safe because we come without judgment. We, come, we love unconditionally. Because marriage reflects this love, it is the only relationship that is strong enough to contain sex and sexuality. That's what Paul teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. It's designed that way. It's a covenant between two people that's strong enough to contain our passion, that's strong enough to contain our emotions. It's strong enough to contain the two becoming one flesh. So the challenge that Paul gives us is to let our passions become a reflection of God's passion within the context of marriage, to let our marriages become a reflection of our relationship with God. But as Paul points out, it's difficult sometimes because we can get distracted, distracted by our spouses. And that's why it's so important for us to learn to grow and be undistracted in our relationship with God. Because he says it to, Christ, to marrieds and to unmarrieds, to singles and to marrieds alike, I'm not trying to make this hard on you. All I want you to do is to be able to develop a life that is free from distraction where you have plenty of time to spend with Jesus. Because as you do, you're going to find that your marriage may be hard, but it's awesome. 
You can see this person that's across from you. You can see this person that is deeply loved by Jesus. And you can start, hopefully, maybe, slowly, over time, to love them well. To love them well. I'm way off target here. i got to figure out where the world I'm at. Just like every other sermon. <laughs> I, I wanted to say, this isn't actually in my notes, but this is in my heart, that the church has made sex and sexuality very difficult. We've put so much shame over sex and sexuality. We've said that it is so powerful that we need to stay divided. I mean, to the point where in, in a lot of churches, women sit on one side and men sit on the other. It's weird. We, we want to keep each other far away because our passions are going to burn out of control and then we're going to fall into sin. You know, it's, I went to a Bible college and we said that, you know, that dancing isn't okay. And we also said that sex isn't okay. The reason that sex isn't okay is because sex leads to dancing. And so he didn't want to break either one of those things. It's true. <laughs> like, don't have sex because you'll wind up dancing. Sex is a very good and wonderful thing designed by God. And single people, we don't want you to feel shame around this. And if you have, have moved, you're like, you're like, I'm new to this church thing, and I, I have this past, this history, and it's full of distractions. It's not a thing of shame for you. It's a thing of brokenness that God wants to restore. If you've been married and you've had relationships outside of that marriage that have broken that covenant, it's not meant to be a thing of shame. We're not calling you out and saying shame on you. We're calling you up into something better. We're calling you up into a marriage of wholeness. We're calling you up into a singleness that is devoted to Jesus. And so I want to say, as a pastor, I'm sorry for the shame that has been placed on you because I have experienced that shame and it has messed with me in my mind about around the concepts of sex and sexuality and made it difficult. And it's an area I'm growing in. This message is a big part of that growth, understanding that God's goal for me isn't one thing or the other, but it's that I would be devoted to him in it. And he's inviting you to be devoted to him in it. So today I want to close by praying for singles and for marrieds. And I'm going to ask my wife if she's willing to come and pray with me for the marrieds especially. Um, I have some written prayers. Is that okay? Written prayers? And what I want to really do is I want to invite, this is going to be really awkward. Okay, so if you're a guest with us, just be awkward. It's okay. Just, just hold on. So go ahead and come on up so you can grab your special new microphone. Um, we're going to pray by stretching out our hand toward one another, okay? Let's, you want to practice that for a second? You can just pick anybody, any target like this. Okay, there you go. So what we're doing when we do this is that we're praying to God, but we're saying, look, God, I am, I'm praying for that individual right now, right? I'm, I'm praying for them specifically. All right, okay, now you can put your hands down. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite all the singles, married, widowed, um, single by singleness, <laughs> young, people that are under marriage age, whatever, would you guys just stand up? That includes you. We're going to stand and pray for you too, Isaac. He, he did say it wrong. Did I say it wrong? He, yeah, you're what did I say wrong? I want the single people to stand up. <laughs> Let's be clear. Single people. All right? Single people, not married. If you are, if you're even engaged, I want you to stand up. All right. So all the married people, look around and see all the single people. 
We're going to pray for those people. So those are the people I want you to stretch your hand toward, okay? <laughs> you're going to pick one or two or three, and you're going to pray for them. And I'm going to pray this written prayer for you. Lord, give these men and women the strength to answer your call, to be a living sign of your love. Make their love for others today reflect your love for them. May they be loyal to you, faithful to you. May they reflect your unconditional and life-giving love. May they be as present to other people as you are to them, so that the whole world could see your presence in their tender love for others. Help them stay close to you in the body of Jesus and continue to feed their love for others with your love. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Now, singles, you can sit down. And marrieds, I want to ask you to stand up. It's right here. Whoops. Don't. So we're going to ask the singles to pray for the marrieds. And I asked Heidi to join me up here to, to pray for the marriages in our church. So let's all stretch our hands out to the marrieds. Lord, I ask that you would give each person standing here today the strength to answer your call to be a living sign of your love to the world around us. Make our love for our spouses like your love for him or her, passionate, permanent, intimate, unconditional, and life-giving. May we be as present to each other as you are to us so that all the world can see your presence and our tender love for each other. Help us both to stay close to you in the body of Christ and continue to feed our love with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's one, oh, I, I, I did all that. So we're going to close by singing the doxology. So would you just all stand? <laughs> we're up and down, up and down, up and down. I'm trying to keep you awake. It's noon. We're going to be done. Yeah. We have people doing yoga in the back and Zumba and stuff. We're just going to stand up and we're going to sing the doxology together. So the doxology, which we've been doing at the end of each service, says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I want you to hear this morning that as a single person, you are a blessing to this family. As a married couple, you are a blessing to this family. And so when we praise God for the blessings of single people and married people, we are saying, God, thank you for the gift of one another. So let's sing that together. Ready? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in the grace of the Lord to live out of your marriage or your singleness as the greatest witness to this world has ever seen. A love that is patient, loyal, kind, passionate, true, faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.